Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Subscribe to this newsletter at snoozecast.com. This episode is brought to you by A Wondrous Nature. Tonight, we'll read another story from our King Arthur series. This one, Merlin Foretells the Birth of Arthur, comes from a book edited by Rupert S. Holland and published in 1919. If you'd like to listen to this whole anthology easily in order, go to snoozecast.com slash series. Merlin is a mythical figure prominently featured in the legend of King Arthur and best known as a wizard. He became one of the most important figures in the imagination and literature of the Middle Ages. Most notable among his superpowers being that of prophecy and shape-shifting, Merlin engineers the birth of Arthur through magic and intrigue. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Vortigern, the usurper, sat upon his throne in London when, suddenly, upon a certain day, ran in a breathless messenger 
who cried aloud, Arise, Lord King, for the enemy is come, even Ambrosius and Uther, upon whose throne thou sittest, and full twenty thousand with them, and they have sworn by a great oath, Lord, to vanquish thee, ere this year be done, and even now they march towards thee as the north wind of winter for bitterness and haste. At those words, Vortigern's face grew white as ashes, and, rising in confusion and disorder, he sent for all the best artificers and craftsmen and mechanics, and commanded them vehemently to go and build him straightway in the furthest west of his lands a great and strong castle where he might fly for refuge and escape the vengeance of his master's sons. And moreover, cried he, let the work be done within a hundred days from now, or I will surely spare no life amongst you all. Then all the host of craftsmen found out a proper site whereon to build the tower and eagerly began to lay in the foundations. But no sooner were the walls raised up above the ground than all their work was overwhelmed and broken down by night invisibly, no man perceiving how, or by whom, or what. And the same thing happening again, And yet again, all the workmen sought out the king and threw themselves upon their faces before him, beseeching him to interfere and help them or to deliver them from their dreadful work. The king called for the astrologers and wizards and took counsel with them what these things might be, and how to overcome them. The wizards worked their spells and incantations. Messengers were therefore sent forthwith through all the land to find, if it were possible, a child to work the magic through. And, as some of them went down a certain village street, they saw a band of lads fighting and quarreling, and heard them shout at one, Son of no mortal man, go find thy father and leave us in peace. At that, the messengers looked steadfastly on the lad and asked who he was. One said his name was Merlin, another that his birth and parentage were known by no man, a third that the foul fiend alone was his father. Hearing the things, the officers seized Merlin and carried him before the king. But no sooner was he brought to them Then he asked in a loud voice for what cause he was thus dragged there. 
My magicians, answered Vortigern, told me to seek out a man that had no human father and to perform magic upon him that it may stand. Order those magicians, said Merlin, to come before me and I will convict them of a lie. The king was astonished at his words, but commanded the magicians to come and sit down before Merlin, who cried to them, Because ye know not what it is that hinders the foundation of this castle, ye have advised to use me for a cement to it, as if that would avail. But tell me now rather what there is below that ground, for something there is surely underneath that will not suffer the tower to stand. The wizards at these words began to feel confused and made no answer. Then said Merlin to the king, I pray, Lord, that workmen may be ordered to dig deep down into the ground till they shall come to a great pool of water. This then was done, and the pool discovered far beneath the surface of the ground. Then, turning again to the magicians, Merlin said, Tell me now, false sycophants, what there is underneath that pool. But they were silent. Then said he to the king, Command this pool to be drained, and at the bottom shall be found two dragons, great and huge, which now are sleeping, but which at night awake and fight and tear each other. At their great struggle all the ground shakes and trembles, and so cast down thy towers, which, therefore, never yet could find secure foundations. The king was amazed at these words, but commanded the pool to be forthwith drained, and surely at the bottom of it did they presently discover the two dragons fast asleep, as Merlin had declared. But Vortigern sat upon the brink of the pool till night to see what else would happen. Then those two dragons, one of which was white, the other red, rose up and came near one another and began a sore fight and cast forth fire with their breath but the white dragon had the advantage and chased the other to the end of the lake. And he, for grief at his flight, turned back upon his foe and renewed the combat and forced him to retire in turn. But in the end, the red dragon was worsted and the white dragon disappeared, no man knew where. When their battle was done, the king desired Merlin to tell him what it meant, whereat he, 
bursting into tears, cried out this prophecy, which first foretold the coming of King Arthur. Woe to the red dragon, which figureth the British nation, for his banishment cometh quickly. His lurking holes shall be seized by the white dragon, the Saxon whom thou, O king, hast called to the land. The mountains shall be leveled as the valleys, till at length the oppressed shall turn for a season and prevail against the strangers. For a boar of Cornwall shall arise and rend them. The island shall be subject to his power, and he shall take the forests of Gaul. The house of Romulus shall dread him, all the world shall fear him, and his end shall no man know. He shall be immortal in the mouths of the people, and his works shall be food to those that tell them. But as for thee, O Vortigern, flee thou the sons of Constantine, for thine own ruin wast thou traitor to their father, and didst bring the Saxon heathens to the land. Aurelius and Uther are even now upon thee to revenge what you did to their father, and the brood of the white dragon shall waste thy country. Find out some refuge, if thou wilt. The king heard all this, and said nothing in reply. Only he hasted the builders of his tower by day and night, and rested not till he had fled thereto. In the meantime, Aurelius, the rightful king, was hailed with joy by the Britons, who flocked to his standard and prayed to be led against the Saxons. But he would begin no other war. He marched, therefore, to Cambria, and came before the tower which the usurper had built. Then, crying out to all his knights, Avenge ye on him who hath ruined Britain, he rushed with many thousands at the castle walls, But, being driven back again and yet again, they eventually burned down the tower that Vertigern built. Later, Aurelius felt sorrow for all the Britons who were lost in the fighting, and he cast about in his mind how to make a worthy monument over so many noble martyrs. When he had in vain consulted many craftsmen and builders, he sent, by the advice of the archbishop, for Merlin, and asked him what to do. If you would honor the burying place of these men, said Merlin, with an everlasting monument, send for the giant's dance, which is in a mountain in Ireland for there is a structure of stone which none of this age could raise without a perfect knowledge of the arts. 
They are stones of a vast size and wondrous nature, and if they can be placed here as they are there, round this spot of ground, they will stand forever. At these words of Merlin, Aurelius burst into laughter and said, How is it possible to remove such vast stones from so great a distance as if Britain also had no stones fit for the work? I pray the king, said Merlin, to forbear vain laughter. What I have said is true, for those stones are mystical and have healing virtues. The giants of old brought them from the furthest coast of Africa and placed them in Ireland while they lived in that country, and their design was to make baths in them for use in time of grievous illness. For if they washed the stones and put the sick into the water, it certainly healed them, as also it did them that were wounded in battle. And there is no stone among them, but hath the same virtue still. When the Britons heard this, they resolved to send for the stones and to make war upon the people of Ireland if they offered to withhold them. So, when they had chosen Uther, the king's brother, for their chief, they set sail to the number of 15,000 men and came to Ireland. But the Irish king withstood them fiercely, and not till after a great battle could they approach the giant's dance, the sight of which filled them with joy and admiration. But when they sought to move the stones, the strength of all the army was in vain, until Merlin, laughing at their failures, contrived machines of wondrous cunning, which took them down with ease and placed them in the ships. When they had brought the whole back, Aurelius, with the crown upon his head, kept for four days the feast of Pentecost with royal pomp, and in the midst of all the clergy and the people, Merlin raised up the stones and set them round the sepulchre of the knights and barons as they stood in the mountains of Ireland. Then was the monument called Stonehenge, and stands, as all men know, upon the plains of Britain to this very day. Soon thereafter it befell that Aurelius was slain by poison at Winchester, and was himself buried within the giant's dance. At the same time came forth a comet of amazing size and brightness, darting out a beam at the end whereof was a cloud of fire 
shaped like a dragon, from whose mouth went out two rays, one stretching over Gaul, the other ending in seven lesser rays over the Irish Sea. At the appearance of this star, a great dread fell upon the people, and Uther, marching into Cambria against the son of Vortigern, himself was very troubled to learn what it might mean. Then Merlin, being called before him, cried with a loud voice, O mighty loss, O stricken Britain, alas, the great prince is gone from us. Aurelius Ambrosius is dead, whose death will be ours also, unless God help us. Haste, therefore, noble Uther, to destroy the enemy. The victory shall be thine, and thou shalt be king of all Britain. For the star with the fiery dragon signifies thyself, and the ray over Gaul portends that thou shalt have a son most mighty, whom all those kingdoms shall obey, which the ray covers. Thus, for the second time, did Merlin foretell the coming of King Arthur. And Uther, when he was made king, remembered Merlin's words and caused two dragons to be made in gold in likeness of the dragon he had seen in the star. One of these he gave to Winchester Cathedral and had the other carried into all his wars before him, whence he was ever after called Uther Pendragon, or the Dragon's Head. Now, when Uther Pendragon had passed through all the land and settled it, and even voyaged into all the countries of the Scots, and tamed the fierceness of that rebel people, he came to London and ministered justice there. And it befell at a certain great banquet and high feast, which the king made at Eastertide, there came, with many other earls and barons, the Duke of Cornwall and his wife, Egerna, who was the most famous beauty in all Britain. And soon thereafter, the duke being slain in battle, Uther determined to make Egerna his own wife. But in order to do this and enable him to come to her, for she was shut up in a high castle on the furthest coast of Cornwall, the king sent for Merlin to take counsel with him and to pray his help. This Therefore, Merlin promised him on one condition, namely, that the king should give him up the first son born of the marriage. For Merlin, by his art, foreknew that this firstborn should be the long-wished prince, King Arthur. When Uther, therefore, was at length happily wedded, 
Merlin came to the castle on a certain day and said, Sir, thou must now provide thee for the nourishing of thy child. And the king, nothing doubting, said, Be it as thou wilt. I know a lord of thine in this land, said Merlin, who is a man both true and faithful. Let him have the nourishing of the child. His name is Sir Ector, and he hath fair possessions both in England and in Wales. When, therefore, the child is born, let him be delivered unto me, unchristened, at yonder postern gate, and I will bestow him in the care of this good knight. So, when the child was born, the king bid two knights and two ladies to take it, bound in rich cloth of gold, and deliver it to a poor man whom they should discover at the postern gate. And the child being delivered thus to Merlin, who himself took the guise of a poor man, was carried by him to a holy priest and christened by the name of Arthur, and then was taken to Sir Ector's house and nourished at Sir Ector's wife's own breasts. And in the same house he remained privily for many years, no man soever knowing where he was, save Merlin and the king. Anon it befell that the king was seized by a lingering distemper, and the Saxon heathens, taking their occasion, came back from oversea and swarmed upon the land. When Uther heard thereof, he fell into a greater rage than his weakness could bear, and commanded all his nobles to come before him, that he might upbraid them for their cowardice. And when he had sharply and hotly rebuked them, he swore that he himself, nigh until death although he lay, would lead them forth against the enemy. Then, causing a horse litter to be made, in which he might be carried, for he was too faint and weak to ride, he went up with all his army swiftly against the Saxons. But they, when they heard that Uther was coming in a litter, disdained to fight him, saying it would be shameful for brave men to fight with one so weak. So they retired into their city and, as it were in scorn of danger, left the gates wide open. But Uther straightway commanding his men to assault the town, they did so without loss of time, and had already reached the gates, when the Saxons, repenting too late of their haughty pride, rushed forth to the defense the battle raged till night, 
and was begun again next day. But at last their leaders, being slain, the Saxons turned their backs and fled, leaving the Britons a full triumph. The king at this felt so great joy that, whereas before he could scarce raise himself without help, he now sat upright in his litter by himself and said, with a laughing and merry face, they called me the half-dead king, and so indeed I was. But victory to me half-dead is better than defeat and the best health. But the Saxons, although thus defeated, were ready still for war. Uther would have pursued them, but his illness had by now so grown that his knights and barons kept him from the adventure. Whereat the enemy took courage and left nothing undone on the land until, descending to further treachery, they resolved to poison the king. To this end, as he lay sick, they sent a poison stealthily in spring water, whence he was wont to drink daily. And so, when the knights and barons full of sorrow, now took counsel together and came to Merlin for his help to learn the king's will before he died, for he was by this time near speechless. Sirs, there is no remedy, said Merlin, and God's will must be done, but be ye all tomorrow before him, for God will make him speak one last time. So, on the morrow, all the barons, with Merlin, stood round the bedside of the king, and Merlin said aloud to Uther, Lord, shall thy son Arthur be the king of all this realm after thy days? Then, Uther Pendragon turned him about and said, in the hearing of all of them, God's blessing and mine be upon him. I bid him pray for my soul and also that he claim my crown or forfeit all my blessing. And with those words, he died. Then came together all the bishops and the clergy and great multitudes of people bewailing the king and carrying his body to the convent. They buried it close by his brother's grave within Stonehenge and the giant's dance.